All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? How do you get it? We'll deconstruct everything from motivation and mental health to anti-racism and addiction. Ultimately, the goal is to give you the tools and strategies that you need to live your most powerful life, being a force for good in the world and impacting the people around you in a positive way. Powerful is brought to you by me, your host, Jeff Kula. I help people change and build incredible teams. Welcome to the show. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship of self. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. Our guest today has spent more than 20 years helping educators in 48 states and a dozen countries strengthen their equity efforts in classrooms, schools, and districts. He's the founder of the Equity Literacy Institute and EdChange. He's published more than 70 articles and has written, co-written, or co-edited 12 books on various aspects of educational equity, including Reaching and Teaching Students in Poverty and Case Studies on Diversity and Social Justice Education. He's the author of the Multicultural Pavilion, an online compendium of free resources for educators. He earned a PhD in educational evaluation at the University of Virginia and was a teacher educator at several universities for 15 years. Please welcome Paul Gorski. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, happy to be with you. Awesome. So, yeah, this podcast is all about power and how it shows up in ourselves, how we operationalize our personal power and our own agency and autonomy, and how it shows up in our institutions. And I know you spend a lot of time thinking about institutional power and, and inequity and equity and justice in those spaces. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it is you do? So if you had to sum it up, somebody asks you, hey, Paul, what do you do? How do you answer that? Uh, well, what I do is work a lot with uh, schools and school districts around uh, issues of power, around issues of racism, sexism, heterosexism, transphobia, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, often at schools that have done sort of level one work, uh, maybe some celebrating diversity, maybe a little cultural competence, but haven't quite started taking seriously uh, bigger structural issues like racism and how that's those sorts of things operate in the school. So uh, I work with uh, schools and school districts to do a better job around those issues. Okay. And what does that look like? So what it, what is it exactly you're doing? Is it mostly conversational coming in and, and leading workshops? Is it looking at syst- like structural pieces with leadership? Is it kind of all over the place? What's, what's the primary way that you, that you do that? Yeah, it's all of those sorts of things. Sometimes it's professional development. A lot of times it's uh, sort of visioning and planning uh, working directly with uh, leadership to just develop a deeper understanding of, uh, of what it will take to address these issues in a serious way. Sometimes it's also about some assessment, uh, helping uh, helping leaders go through go through uh, like their policies and practices, and just be able to look at them in a little different way and how they distribute or fail to distribute uh, power and privilege. Right. So what do you see as the biggest barrier? If we, had, if we had to talk, if we had to start with, you know, an educational system, uh, whether it's, you know, an individual school or a group of schools, what do you see as the biggest barrier to making that kind of level two change? Is it the fact that they've embraced kind of level one level work and they think that's kind of good enough? Like I, I've started to think that diversity work might be a bit of a distraction um, and you might call it a detour that like, oh, good enough. Yeah, we've had, yeah, we had that training last year. Somebody came in and talked for an hour on that topic. And so we're, we're good. Um, is that part of the problem? Is it, or how do you see? That's definitely part of the problem. Part of the problem is that the optics of equity and justice are actually rewarded more than actual progress toward equity and justice. So the real rush is just to be able to say, well, we have this program or we have that program. Uh, I know you're interested in uh, mental health stuff, and that's a big thing in schools right now. So we have the social emotional learning and we have the trauma-informed practice, and all of these things that people can point to, these programs and initiatives that, in a way, could be quite helpful and beneficial, but in in the context of equity and justice work, often are kind of detours around 
equity and justice to let's fix the kids. And so a lot of it is just ideological. A lot of it is a real, almost like an obsession with trying to fix the inequities and injustices in every possible way other than naming and eliminating the inequities and the injustices. And most of that ends up being, we have to fix the kids. We have to fix their mentality. We have to fix their mindset. We have to fix their culture and everything other than addressing those conditions. Yeah, that's it. That's super interesting. I often talk about the problem with growth mindset and grit and resiliency and trauma-informed practice as as just that. You know, we're aiming it at the individual level and we locate the problem inside of the kid that's sitting in front of us and we orient ourselves to trying to fix that as opposed to looking at the like why are we traumatizing kids? Like why are they showing up to school traumatized? Like what's what's going on there? So that uh, that yeah, resonates. I, I always say when the trauma-informed stuff comes up, it's like well what do trauma-informed practices look like for students for whom school is their biggest source of trauma because there are a lot of kids who are traumatized at school because of racism because of heterosexism you know i do these uh focus groups Uh, you know i travel around doing focus groups with students who are marginalized at school and you know and i you know often i'll ask them well for instance students of color will what do you experience and how often are you experiencing racism? And they say every day, multiple times a day in school, I'm hearing racist jokes. I'm hearing racist comments. I feel invisible in the curriculum. The teachers aren't addressing the stuff that's happening. And it's like for a lot of these kids, school is traumatizing. And that part never gets addressed because it would have to be addressed at the systems level, uh, you know, to, to get at that. And instead, it's almost like we're trying to come up with these strategies to adjust the kids so that they can manage the trauma mm-hmm. instead of attacking the trauma. Yeah, that was the, that's what eventually shifted me out of it doing addictions work was the realization fairly early on that's like, well, we're just dealing with symptoms and we can deal with symptoms all day long or we can start to tackle root causes and we can start to dig under there uh, a little bit. So how do you do that? You know, kind of practically speaking, if you're sitting down with an administrator say, and want to shift the conversation from level one work, which is kind of maybe what they've been been doing to that that deeper work. Can you walk me through that process a little bit so that someone listening to this could start to take some of those next next action steps beyond kind of token, you know, diversity training or whatever it happens to be? Yeah, absolutely. So usually the process uh, in in schools is this kind of drawn out process where you start with individual, where you start with kind of celebrating diversity, then maybe you go to individual bias, and then you're sort of, and sometimes that's like a multi-year deal. I think uh, what makes my approach maybe a little different from that is, to me, the first question is, how's racism operating here? Because if if I can't answer that question, then I can't do the rest of it. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's where we start. How is transphobia, sexism, ableism, how is it operating here right now? And a lot of, uh, of course, a lot of administrators in their administrative license program, they weren't trained how to answer that question. (laughs) You know, they were trained on how to celebrate diversity, how to think in culturally competent ways. So, So then it takes sort of a process of stepping through that. That might be, okay, well, let's Let's look at some policy. Let's look at an example of a policy in this school that might actually be traumatizing students experiencing poverty or punish students experiencing poverty for their poverty. And it's sort of learning just how to identify that and then how to sort of bridge that. Um, I think also a lot of people are really stuck in this very kind of deficit view. So they think Mm -hmm. that you know, educational outcome disparities across socioeconomic status are mostly the result of the mindsets or cultures of people experiencing poverty. And and that's another thing I, f- I feel like I have to work really hard to do in schools and school districts is to bridge people from that deficit view to a more structural understanding. And just a quick example of something yeah. like that. Somebody will say something like, you know, well, we do all these you know, we have all these opportunities for family engagement and the uh, lowering the families who are experiencing poverty, they never show up. So that just proves they don't value education. And then what happens is a lot of the strategies those schools come up with is, well, we have to convince them, to, the uh, low uh, parents who are from low income families. 
And so, and that's a very deficit view. So I might have to just sort of bridge them and say, you know, I wonder if, I wonder if there's something we're doing. Is there, is there something the school's doing that might make family engagement less accessible to these families than to other families? Right? Are there things that you're doing you might not even be intending to do? Uh, and then, so it's just sort of about bridging people from that deficit view to a, uh, just more sort of really looking at it through a lens of power and structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I talked a lot about you know, the difference between intention and impact and how those two can be really incongruent from each other and that we can't keep hiding behind our good intentions. Like everybody has good intentions. I've never met an educator or a, you know, a social worker or anybody who has ill intention towards the people they serve. And then I meet lots of clients or lots of kids or lots of families, like you say, that have been traumatized by their experience or are not getting their needs met. And the impact that the system's having on them is really incongruent with what the intention, the original intention yeah. or the intention of the individual practitioners is. Um, yeah. Can we shift and that? It's also yeah. interesting because the system also has negative impacts on a lot of the practitioners. So if they can step back and see it like that, a lot of practitioners also are being traumatized, you know, by the system. It's like you're forcing me to teach in a way that I know is not good for kids, and I'm being assessed by my, you know, ability to or my willingness to to do that to comply so, with the system. That yeah, yeah. yeah. If you can give people that uh, insight, uh, that can be really helpful. Yeah. And so how do you balance that? I suppose might be a question that I have is how do you balance the individual practitioner with good intentions and being part of a, you know, maybe a racist structure or a sexist structure and perpetuating some of these issues, maybe unintentionally, or it's out of their control. And so, um, cause I think one of the, one of the challenges that you run into, or at least that I've, I know I've run into is the talking about racism kind of, or any kind of identity politics territory is that people will step back and say, well, I'm not racist, right? I, I have a black friend or I have a, you know, I have a lesbian friend or I have a whatever, like you have this, like at the individual level, it's really hard to see yourself as racist. And so how do you, how do you reconcile that? Because ultimately the work from my perspective is that it has to be done at the individual level, right? People have to be able to recognize in themselves what they have control and power over and to choose to, to operationalize that power in a way that's beneficial or at least not harmful to the, the people they're serving. And there's these systemic pressures. And so how, I guess maybe, how do you reconcile that? How, what brought you into this work? Um, yeah. Let's let's back up the train a little bit. What brought you into this work? Why are you so fired up about it? And, and then maybe let's talk about the, how do we balance the individual with the, with the system? Yeah. How did I come into this work? That's a really good question. I, uh, I've always been interested in uh, matters of, racism, sexism, and those sorts of things. Ever since I was a, a child, uh, I grew up in a, what I would say is a pretty conservative family, especially my father, very conservative. Uh, but I had sort of this weird juxtaposition between that and growing up in a pretty diverse community. So, uh, uh, and having two other male role models who were men of color uh, who were, had very powerful impact on my life. So I kind of grew up with that and became very interested in these sorts of issues, but I didn't really have a language for it. I didn't really have an outlet for it uh, until college. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think part of what drew me to it is I, I've always just had a very overactive sense of empathy mm. and I, I sort of soak in suffering. I, I can't stand to watch a tree being cut down because that impacts me. I can't stand to see an animal being mistreated because that impacts me. But especially seeing people being oppressed or mistreated, I just feel it at a very uh, gut level. So in a way, coming into this work was very selfish. I was trying to find a way to cope with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then in in, uh, college, I just got hooked into a group of people who were doing community education around these issues and they happen to be doing that community education in schools. And I sort of got hooked in with them. And that's, that was the beginning of my, uh, of my path. Yeah. Awesome. And what keeps you here? So that's what kind of brought you in, but how do you, how do you maintain the, the energy required, the perspective required? Cause I imagine that 
that it's hard work, right? Like there's no denying that this kind of system level structural change with power dynamics is, is some of the hardest work that that's facing us. How do you, how do you manage that? How do you, what do you do? Or That's a great question. Uh, and I've actually been exploring that a little bit more the last few years. I've been writing about activist burnout and, and that sort of thing. And, and I'll, I'll say sort of up front that in some ways, my identity protects me from some of those stressors. Like I know that there's research, for instance, that shows that uh, African-American uh, racial justice activists are treated much more harshly by law enforcement and that sort of thing than white anti-racist activists. Mm -hmm. So uh, so I don't feel like I have it. You know, those sorts of external things are uh, I don't have that as bad as a lot of my colleagues. But I think being in a community with uh, with other activists, I think is really important. Uh, and uh, having people to to sort of decompress with when when uh, uh, things are hard. But in, in a way, it's like feeling that I'm part of, that I'm in service to these movements. I don't really see myself as a leader of any of them. I just see myself as in service to them. And that just, for me, creates the energy that keeps me going. I don't think I could live with myself. Uh, I mean, in a way, to me, the well-being is being in the movement. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, And I've also been really lucky that I've been surrounded by activists who are attentive to, to their own well-being. So that was modeled for me from a really early age as an activist. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, so from a right use of power perspective, which is a framework that has kind of heavily influenced me. We talk about self-care and how it's ethical practice, not optional practice, and that when you shift that mindset to oh, this is actually a part of the role, because if I have to operationalize my personal power and build relationships with people, and that's the tool kit, and I'm not well myself, and I'm burnt out, like you say, or I'm I'm fried, or my well-being is suffering, then that really impacts the the quality of the work that we can do. And so I know that yeah. that's been a, sh a shift um, for a lot of educators that I've worked with, is when you frame it that way, they're like, oh, hmm, I mean, I can't just white knuckle it through, you know, April, May, June to get to my summer vacation, like I have to actually look after myself all the time. It's like, well, I guess if yeah. you want to be in in the, these kinds of relationships and you want these to be good relationships with your students, you have to be. Yeah. And I know some of the people who write about burnout, especially related to doing work like racial justice work and, and that sort of thing. A lot of them also uh, talk about sort of thinking about self-care, but also thinking about community care. Mm -hmm. And I could say just based on my own research, interviewing people who do social justice work in education spaces and other spaces, that a big part of their burnout, for instance, I did this one study, I, I, I uh, interviewed 30 racial justice activists who had experienced burnout to try to get a sense of their burnout. What was the cause? And what I started hearing over and over from the activists of color was that one of their biggest sources of burnout was actually the behaviors and attitudes of white activists, not white people really? in general, wow. but white activists coming into those spaces and asserting leadership or slowing down the, the progress or taking credit for the work of activists of color. And so this sort of connects to that thing about community care. It's not just taking care of myself, but making sure that when I'm entering activist spaces, that my attitudes and behaviors aren't contributing to the burnout of other activists. And I think that's really important, especially for someone with a bunch of privileged identities. Mm -hmm. I think it's something really important for me to uh, reflect on. Yeah. And how do you reflect on that? What kind of practices or processes? Because that takes a high level of self-awareness. I mean, just being aware of power and your own power in general is a is a leap sometimes uh, out of the day-to-day -day grind to step back and say, oh, actually, you know, how does my maleness or my whiteness or my privilege, because um, I'm also saturated in lots of privilege um, and I know that I'm more effective when I'm more aware of it and able to watch for the impacts, but that takes, that takes a lot of reflection. And so how do you create space for that? Or how do you, do you have some practices that help you kind of stay grounded in that? Yeah. Just being reflective. Also just entering activist spaces, seeing myself as in service to the movement. So I am going to do what 
people who are marginalized and leading the movement are telling me they need for me to do. I'm not going to assert uh, leadership. Uh, I'm going to come in and service to. So I think just having that mindset. Uh, also, having a community of activists who, you know, you know where there's a where we're close enough that we can name those things in each other. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, you might want to think about how you're coming across there. You know, that that, that sort of thing uh, has been has been really helpful. Yeah, having some good feedback mechanisms or relationships that will point those things out for you. Awesome. What? Let's talk. Let's rewind back to that question that I kind of asked, and then I asked something else um, about the at the individual practitioner level. So my wife's a grade two teacher. Uh, I've got lots of friends who are are educators at the individual educator level. How do they? How does someone kind of start to to work at dismantling some of these inequities in in the classroom if the system itself isn't isn't shifting or isn't driving? the change because let's like system level change can often take a long time. And we've got practitioners that want to do a better job or want to be more aware, want to reduce some of these racial inequities or any, any inequity in the classroom. What's some of your advice to them? What's, uh, what are some practical things that, that folks can do? Well, I'll say sort of two things that are uh, initially one is, so I use this framework called equity literacy. And one of the pieces of equity literacy is, uh, sphere of influence, knowing your sphere of influence. So I, sometimes when I do work, workshops, I actually will have people make these T-charts. And on one side, say, here are the things I do not have control over here. Here are things that are outside my sphere of influence. Then on the other side, here are the things that are within my sphere of influence. You know, because the truth is, there are individual teachers who want to be doing a lot more, but they don't feel like they have the support of the principal. There are principals who want to do a lot more, who feel like they don't have support of the superintendent or whoever mm-hmm. else. So, okay, here's what you have control over. So let's talk about, let's let go of the things for now that you don't have control over. Uh, so it's frustrating that you don't have control over them, but let's just let go of that for a second. And let's take the things you do have control over and think about how can I be as transformative as possible with the things I do have control over. So maybe for an individual teacher, my sphere of influence is my classroom. I might not even have complete control of my classroom. I don't get to pick the textbook, but what do I have control over? I have control over other materials. I have control over the kind of community I build in the classroom. So I can focus on those things. I have control over if a kid uses a homophobic slur I have control over how I respond or whether I respond to that, mm-hmm. right? So how can I prepare myself to respond to that in the most transformative way possible? Once I have a handle on that, I can start to expand my sphere of influence. So maybe, you know, maybe if it's my first year, I just got to focus on that. In my second year, maybe somebody's talking about a new policy in the school. Somebody's saying, oh, we're going to go to this online platform so that parents can access their kids' homework list and the mm-hmm. grades and everything. So maybe the next year I'm prepared to start taking on stuff like that. So instead of just my classroom, maybe that comes up and I say, huh, you know, I wonder what kind of impact this is going to have on our on the families who don't have access to the internet. So maybe I'm expanding my sphere of influence to the school. So, you know, I, I don't think everybody has to take on everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think people you know, start with their direct sphere of influence and then build their influence uh, out from there. But I think the most important thing to do within that sphere of influence to have an impact, even if it's just within my classroom, is to commit to making the ideological shifts necessary. I think, unfortunately, in schools, there's this culture of practicality. Like, Mm -hmm. just give me the five strategies that will help me teach all students of color effectively. <laughs> and it just doesn't work. Somebody, if I have a racial bias, if I have a deficit view of black students, there is no strategy that's going to help me. Mm-hmm. So committing to make, to working at the ideological level, uh, shedding that deficit view of students, learning about how inequity and injustice operates in the bigger society and the impact that has on students even if I'm not creating that inequity and injustice, students are carrying the impact of that into the classroom with them. 
And the, the issue there is not their mindset. The issue there is the oppression and mm-hmm. uh, uh, power imbalances. So even if I might not be able to eliminate all that's going out in there, I can make sure that I have an, you know, an ideology or a perspective or a lens that I can see the ways that that's being reproduced in the school and in my classroom and, and address it and, and not reproduce that stuff. But it's, that's not about strategies. Really, it's about having a lens and just being able to recognize things that maybe I'm socialized not to recognize. And let's let's talk about that because I, I run into the exact same phenomenon where everybody wants strategies and tools and tips. And it's like, well, what's your mindset? Because right? what you know, any tool is the right tool if you've got the right mindset or you've got a mindset around it. Um, how do you have mindset conversations? How do you have ideology conversations? How do you open the door to that? And maybe this gets us into the territory of some of these detours, these racial equity detours and why diversity training might be one of those types of things. Um what, what's your perspective on, or how do you go about creating an environment, fostering that? I mean, that, that question that you start with, right, um, kind of opens the door to that. But what's uh, what's your perspective on having that conversation? Because that's probably different than a lot of professional development and or things that people are, are looking for. Um, right. So I start with very basic questions. So I, I might, within the context of a workshop, I might have people, I might say, you know, why on average are uh, are students experiencing poverty not doing as well in school as their wealthier peers? Just a very simple question mm-hmm. like that. Why, on average, are students of color being suspended or expelled at higher rates? And just, you know, getting a sense of how somebody would answer that question. So I might ask that question. Let's take that first question. Mm-hmm. And you'll have a bunch of people who will, you know, their, their impulse is to identify the source of the problem as existing within people experiencing poverty. So they're the ones who are going to say, well, they have no positive role models. They don't value education. They, their parents aren't involved, you know, those mm-hmm. sorts of things. Right? You'll have other people saying, uh, you know, maybe big structural stuff. They'll say capitalism or they'll say <laughs> uh, access and opportunity aren't distributed fairly. Right. So, We'll, we'll get all of that stuff, maybe put all of that on a dry erase board or something, and then start to map it out from a deficit view to a structural view. And, you you know, and so what I want is to get a lot of people just don't even know what their ideology is. Mm-hmm. They just sort of fed it. So they're just looking at the world through that lens. So uh, a lot of people don't realize that they have a deficit view of students experiencing poverty. And a lot of people have a deficit view actually through kind of good intentions, mm-hmm. uh, almost through like a, some kind of savior syndrome kind of, kind, of, kind of thing, which is good intentions, bad impact, mm-hmm. right? So um, so things like that. Or And, and the, the, what the interesting thing is research always confirms that the issue is structural. The issue is not some deficit within the same thing with why – you know, in the U.S. at least, uh, you know, there's all this research that shows that, for instance, African-American students are suspended or expelled at higher rates. Most people believe that that's because they have more behavior problems. Mm-hmm. So what are schools doing? They're instituting PBIS. They're, uh, they're saying, well, we need to help uh, African-American students moderate their emotions and, and those sorts of things. The problem is research shows that that problem has nothing to do with the behaviors of African-American students. It has to do with the racial bias of educators and the, and the racial bias of school uh, practices when it comes to, right? So uh, so helping people sort of see the gap between their perception and the actual reality and then have them actual, then have them practice starting with a deficit view and say, okay, how do you bridge this to a structural view? Yep. Uh, you know, that, that, that's the way that has worked, uh, the, the best for me. Yeah. Nice. No, I like that. Um, yeah. In the right use of power framework, there's kind of four dimensions. And the first is, is getting informed about power. And that's just 
being able to see a power dynamic and understanding what's happening because a lot of what we ascribe to the individual um, is actually just a response to power or a reaction to power or powerlessness wherever you land on that side of the power spectrum. Um, and then awareness, personal awareness about how your own perspective on on power or your own perspective on things. And so those first two, if we don't have those, we, we shouldn't even be talking about the skills and the tactics and the strategies to, to do anything, right? Um, interesting. What, what are some of the the barriers that are most common. So mindset being one of them, maybe, or, or ideological perspective kind of being incongruent or that deficit view versus structural. What other, um, I guess you'd call them equity detours. Is that the right kind of racial equity detours around, um, that, that are prevalent in our, in our systems, things that are maybe again, are good intention. Like the intention is good and you kind of see that, but the impact that it's having, you know, you don't have to look too far for me. I, I see the, you know, the black lives matter movement from a while back. And then the almost instantaneous spark of the all lives matter movement was like, huh, that's interesting. Like, how's yeah. that? How's that going? So you kind of see it playing itself out in, in, this, in society and in, in politics, but what do you see as some of the biggest, most glaring ones? Well, the, the example you just gave is something that's replicated in a lot of schools, which is, and uh, when I, you know, when I talk about these equity detours, the first detour I always talk about, I call it the, the pacing for privilege detour, which is how, you know, the, in essence, it's like, well, how can we have these conversations uh, in a way that prioritizes the comfort of the people who have the least interest in the conversations rather than prioritizing progress for the people who have the most interest in the conversations. And, and that's that sort of, you know, celebrating diversity. Can we all just get along? Let's get sort of stuck at the, you know, individual interactive thing and not be able to take a step back and, and see. So uh, I think one of the biggest barriers is a lot of equity you know, people call it diversity, equity, and inclusion mm-hmm. work. That a lot of that uh, is done at a pace to keep the people with the least interest in racial equity comfortable. And, uh, and, and there's just no way to make progress for that. So I always say, you got to move at the pace of the people who are ready to move. Mm-hmm. Students who are feeling marginalized right now can't afford to wait for all these adults to catch up. So you just got to move. And, and, uh, and, 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 you know, I, I often make the point that, you know, and, and uh, if a school is doing well around equity, the people who are choosing not to be engaged in that should feel marginalized. They should feel marginalized because the institutional culture is up here. You know, mm-hmm. it's moving and they should feel like, well, maybe I don't belong here this but in most schools, the people who are the loudest voices for equity and justice, they're the ones who feel like they don't belong. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that pacing for privilege because the school's moving and let's not make anyone uncomfortable. And really what they're doing is they're unloading the comfort from privileged identity people who are choosing not to move forward and just putting that onto marginalized kids, just unloading the discomfort. So I, I think that's a big one. I think as I sort of alluded to earlier, that kind of celebrating diversity or mistaking, you know, if we just have the International Food Fair and Multicultural Arts and Crafts Fair, you know, that that somehow is taking, addressing the uh, power and privilege issues, which of course it isn't. A lot of that stuff actually reproduces the inequities uh, in, in a lot of ways. I, I think that's that's a big uh, one. And then of course, as I mentioned, uh, there are all of these initiatives and programs and strategies that are really about adjusting the mindsets and cultures and values of kids. And that is sort of that deficit. I call it the, the uh, deficit ideology detour where instead of it's where it's really focused, not uh, it's focused on fixing marginalized people rather than fixing the conditions that marginalize people. And that's really what the focus should be on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Um, what are your thoughts on the, the, the intersection of all of these, these issues? And so race and gender and sexual identity and, and marginalization and oppression um, from a bunch of different perspectives. Is that part of the issue is that the conversation has become fragmented and that 
because I, I, I worry sometimes that like, if it's really about power, like, can we just call it power and start to talk about it as like, do you have power? Do you not have power? Right. Who has the power? Why do they have the power? Like some of those like really fundamental questions versus sometimes what I see is the, the, cause I think that what ends up happening for, or I wonder what ends up happening for the average person with power is that they get confused and they get, um, maybe distracted by like, these are distractions around, um, some funder un, under underlying issues, um, like poverty or like, um, a clo- like in in Canada, you know, colonial settlerism, um, where you know we've taken indigenous lands and put them in residential schools, and then we wonder why we get all of these systemic issues. Um, talking about it, being distracted by some of these individual kind of identity based things versus like peeling that onion back a little bit and getting right right underneath. What are your thoughts on on that piece? I don't know if there's a question in there if I'm just kind of I'm wrestling with that myself yeah, about yeah, it's I think even among people who do equity and justice work there's some tension there certainly I I think it's about how we look at the issues because certainly uh, racism impacts who has power and who doesn't have power there is some context in which uh, different identities group identities might inform who has power differently mm-hmm. so I uh, so I, I I think you know I, I think sometimes there's fragmentation in the sense that all of those conversations se- seem to be separated into separate conversations so here's a conversation about poverty and here's a conversation about race and here's mm-hmm. a conversation but but I do think in a way there's sort of this sort of understanding curve. And at one end of the curve, for instance, for a lot of white people, if you if you give white I found if I give fellow white people any space to shift the conversation away from race, they will quickly shift it <laughs> away from race. Mm-hmm. And often when I in a workshop or something, when I, when I'll ask, well, what are Name three ways racism is operating right now in your school. Uh, a lot of the examples that come from white people are actually class issues, not race issues, because mm-hmm. like, white people just often really struggle to, you know, to do that. So I think early in that developmental process, I think it is important to do some of that fragmenting because I, I have to learn to see how this, you know, racism doesn't operate exactly the same way sexism operates. So. Mm-hmm learn this. And when I get to a certain point on that curve, then I could start looking more intersectionally, or I could see how this is connected to settler colonialism or to economic injustice or, or something bigger. But if I introduce that connection to, to uh, you know, to poverty at the very beginning, then too many white people in particular will say, well, the issue's not race, it's class. So right. then they're, they're sort of excuse themselves from understanding that big piece. The reality is we really can't understand race without also understanding economic injustice. And we can't mm-hmm. understand economic injustice without also understanding a whole history of racism, sexism, ableism, settler colonialism, all of these sorts of things. Uh, so eventually, you know, and, you know, the, as we get sort of along that curve, I think, you know, doing some of the defragmenting can can uh, uh, result in a more complex conversation. Yeah. And maybe that's what I'm experiencing or what I'm what I'm wondering about is how do we have the like the, the complex kind of conversations, the nuanced conversations about these issues. And when we're kind of we sometimes get seem to get lost inside of the fragments um, inside of the, the individual kind of issues as they come up and not finding some way as as people doing this type of work to connect the dots maybe faster or in, in more helpful ways uh, for people is something that I'm always striving to do is to accelerate people's journey along that curve because there's kids that are being marginalized in your classroom right now. So I can't wait for you to figure that, like connect the dots for yourself. Um, so what are some of the ways that you go about connecting those dots in a way? Because one, one of the things, so I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Marshall Rosenberg, nonviolent communication, um, I'll send you a link to check it out. I've heard, it's a, I've heard that term, yeah. nonviolent Yeah, so nonviolent or compassionate communication. Sometimes even just telling people that we're going to talk about nonviolent communication, the backs go up in the wall. 
against the wall. I'm not violent. And they start looking around, who here is violent? Nobody here is violent. And I'm like, we're all violent all the time. Like I'm violent with my, with my seven-year-old trying to get him into bed on a Friday night at eight o'clock. I'm sure that his experience of me is sometimes a little bit violent, right? Not, not physical violence, but the tone of voice gets a little sharper and the, you know, the felt experience is different. And so language becomes a really important piece for me. I'm really conscious of the language that I use with people trying not to automatically get the the defenses up around some of these topics which is which is hard and so how do you balance that like challenging people and kind of speaking showing the truth with like having people disengage from the conversation because of the because of the challenge because of that comfort zone you talked about a little bit right um how do you how do you balance those two things yeah my experience is usually the people who disengage are going to disengage regardless of how we broach the topic So I just have to stop worrying about them in the context of the bigger conversation. So I would go and check in with them, but I'm not, for instance, if I'm doing a group thing, I'm not taking up the group's time dealing with that. Mm -hmm. So I, so I start from a place of high expectations and especially in education, there's all this talk about got to have high expectations for students. Well, we have to have high expectations for ourselves. So I'm, you know, so I'm thinking I'm going to move at the pace of the people who are moving, the 40% of people who are moving the fastest. That's who I'm sort of aiming the conversation for. There are going to be people who disengage. Sometimes those are people who, you know, want to hold up the process and they're very conscious of what they're doing. Sometimes it's just someone who's having a bad day and they just can't hold the stuff right now, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of reasons people disengage, uh, but, uh, but, you know, kind of going back to what you said, that there are people, there are kids being marginalized right now. So we can't hold up the conversation for that. So my approach is who's most ready to have this conversation. We'll have the conversation at their pace. So at least the people who are ready to move uh, have the, the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, ideological lens and the tools to the people who are the most ready to move, they're moving. They have the tools and the perspective to move. <clears throat> and the people who are, you know, the, the people who are sort of on the fence, at least the seeds are being planted there, mm-hmm. right? So they're being invited to, to move or to move faster. And then there's always going to be the percentage of people who have no intention of being moved. And I just feel like, and and again, this is the problem with a lot of the ways workshops, professional development, and and the the pace of this work in schools happen. It happens. It it, it happens at the pace of those most resistant people. Mm -hmm. And so we make no progress. And we're doing diversity 101 over and over and over. Mm -hmm. We never even get to the structural conversation, the power conversation. So, so, you know, maybe, you know, I, I guess my way of balancing it is I'm going to move at the pace of the people ready to move. Uh, and I will go individually and check in with the people who look like they're, they're checking out. But you also have to think about in the room are people who are experiencing marginalization, too. And what is it going to look like? Think about me as a white heterosexual man going in there saying, well, this is going to. I'm just going to reproduce what you've been experiencing. Mm-hmm. And, and I just don't feel like I can do that. So I'm, I'm going to try to move at your pace and I will check in individually. I'm not going to allow the pace of the conversation to be guided by the people who don't even want to be having the conversation. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the way I balance it. Nice. No, I like that. That's uh, that's a good tip. Um, I, I tend to have a similar kind of bent to me, but it uh, I know that it gets... Maybe it gets frustrating for those who are ready to move um, to to have that pace kind of slowed down. I wonder how do you know you're making progress? So how does a how does a system know it's making progress when we've been used to kind of the yes we did diversity training I can tick that box we're making progress versus real progress? How do you help teams differentiate or figure out um, if they're actually making moving the needle on these issues? That's a great question. I mean, the simplest answer I can give you is ask students who have been marginalized and believe what they say, mm-hmm. the feedback. Now you can ask them through surveys, you can ask them through focus groups, you can ask them uh, individually. What asking them looks like can, you know, that could be a lot of different things. 
But I, that, to me, that's really the only way. Um, you know, a lot of people, what they're fixated on is scores. <laughs> so if the scores go up, we know we're making progress. And, and I guess in a way, that's a piece of a measurement. But I don't think it's the most important piece. Because I, I can be, you know, I could be a transgender student who's doing really well. I could be, you know, an African-American student who's doing really well or an indigenous identity student who's doing really well. But my experience is still an experience of marginalization and oppression. Mm -hmm. So just measuring how I'm doing in terms of grades doesn't really capture. So I, when people talk about, you know, the achievement gap, I always talk about, well, we also have, we have to talk about an opportunity gap, and we also have to talk about an experience gap. Mm -hmm. Like, how are people experiencing the institution differently? And if we don't, you know, you can't measure that on test scores. So you measure that by talking to students, talking to families. And to me, that's the best way to, to get a sense of uh, whether things are improving. Yeah, I always talk about, you know, the, the question is, what do I know about this from their perspective? whatever this is, what do I know about their experience? What do I know about their sense of marginalization? What do I know about anything from their perspective? And when you ask that of a group, they're like, ah, we don't actually know. We have no idea. We have a test score, wow. right? Or we have an attendance uh, I record. A, I can give you a, a quick example of that too. Something I've been thinking about and talking about in these focus groups with students. Now, one thing that a lot of schools point to when I ask them, okay, well, what are you doing around, you know, these issues? A lot of them point to, anti-bullying programs. And these have become really popular in the U.S. I don't know how popular they are in Canada, but schools invest tens of thousands of dollars a year. And they'll have this whole year-long, you know, set of activities and dialogues and stuff about anti-bullying. And so I'll say, well, how, how do you know? I'll say, so what, what are some of the things you're doing to address the issues? They always point to the anti-bullying program. Well, when I do focus groups with students who are feeling marginalized about these anti-bullying programs, you know, most of them say these are having no impact. Mm -hmm. and, and they'll be at a big student assembly for one of these uh, anti-bullying assembly programs, and they'll be getting bullied in the audience by kids who are making fun of what's happening up on the stage. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I kept hearing, which, you know, was kind of interesting was that Every time they have one of these anti-bullying programs, the bullying actually increases for the next few days. Really? So here is a thing, a lot of situations, which is actually making matters worse for LGBTQ kids, for, you know, kids of color, lower income kids, you know, kids who are experiencing poverty, whoever it is. But it's being pointed to as an equity initiative that's making things better. And nobody thought maybe we should ask the kids mm -hmm. and not do a general survey where the voices of kids of color or LGBTQ kids are going to be washed out, but go straight to the kids who are experiencing the bias and the bullying and, the, you know, and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. And, and then a lot of the students would say also, well, how is this anti-bullying program addressing the way that I don't see myself in the curriculum? This has nothing to do with a lot of what I'm experiencing here. So, you know, so it's like, ask the students. <laughs> They'll tell you if, if they trust you. Ask and listen. Like, just yes. ask and stop and talking. What they say. Yeah. <laughs> ask and believe what they say. Yeah, yeah no, that's an interesting talk about intention and impact being misaligned. If the goal here is to reduce bullying and it actually puts it in the other direction. That's, yeah. uh, that should be an eye-opening thing for any any staff team or administrator thinking about their interventions. Um I know we're coming up close to the end of an hour that I had booked with you. So I, I'd appreciate you. Uh, got time for another couple questions? Sure. Is that okay? Okay. Um, I guess when you think about the, the, the quickest wins, knowing that it's really about a perspective and ideology and mindset, but if you're an administrator and you're looking for um, some clear action steps forward with your staff team to address issues of, of let's say, racial inequity what are some of the like what t types of conversations how close together should they be like how can how can we move this um move this conversation forward in a meaningful way if somebody's starting from a place so let's say they've done level one they've done some diversity they've had some people come in and talk about uh, a variety of issues and they really want to start addressing structural pieces um what are some of those practical or first steps that you would kind of identify is it do we need an assessment to see where we're at do we need to do some kind of group work 
I'll stop answering my own question. Give it uh, invite <laughs> well, your thoughts. I think, I think the first thing for the administrator is to take responsibility for modeling a racial justice view and for rewarding, you know, in most schools are people who've been working on that issue for a while. Often they're not popular with their colleagues because of that. So uh, rewarding the people who have been doing that about, this is about shifting the institutional culture to one that values that instead of punishing it, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, a lot of people experience. So, uh, but I think uh, doing professional development around like, like what I was mentioning, like that equity literacy model, where it's really about how do we prepare, how do we help teachers practice just identifying the subtle ways that racial inequity is being perpetuated in their classrooms and in the schools. So could I even recognize racial bias in a children's book if I was reading it? A, a lot of teachers just don't even know how to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, another exercise that I think is really valuable is just going through policy documents. Let's go through the student policy handbook and look at subtle ways in which there's racial bias built into dress code policy or built into other sorts of uh, you know, other sorts of things like that. I also think just a really sort of immediate thing, and this comes out of, again, a lot of what I'm hearing in those focus groups. A lot of teachers were never trained for what are what is something effective I can do if someone uses a racial slur in my classroom. So what a lot of teachers do, and again, that's not their fault. I know I have two degrees in education. I was never trained on how to do this. Mm -hmm. So what do I do other than just saying, we don't use that language here. That's disrespectful language. I don't want to hear that language. How can I actually create a classroom context where my students are used to talking about that stuff? Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the, that, and that's one of the things, that, probably the thing I hear the most in those focus groups is every day, multiple times a day, I'm hearing racist slurs, racist jokes, or homophobic slurs heterosexist jokes, transphobic jokes. And most of them, my teachers don't hear, but when they do hear them, they don't respond to them well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, something every school I think should do is provide some professional development, go through some case scenarios, have people actually practice that. Kid uses the N word. Okay. How do we, how do we, how do we address that yeah. as something more than just, we don't say that in, the, in this classroom. And then not only am I going to handle those situations better, but the students, not just the student directly targeted with that name, but the other students who are feeling oppressed or marginalized by that kind of language. Uh, part of the benefit of that, too, is that they see now that I have their back mm -hmm. more than just we're not going to uh, use that language. So I, I think that's a pretty quick thing, uh, that, that immediate thing that could be done. Yeah. Awesome. And if people want to read more, learn more, where, where do they go? Where do you point people when it comes to, you know, authors they should be reading? Uh, obviously I'll put links to your stuff and your website, um, around equity literacy, but, um, a, a handful of resources or next steps, um, for people, if they've listened to this conversation and they want to learn more, um, uh, well, definitely the equity literacy website if people are curious about that model in particular. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, I think uh, I think a great resource, I, I think two of my favorite resources. One uh, is uh, Teaching Tolerance, which for years I think was pretty fluffy, really about teaching quote-unquote tolerance, but has really in the last five years been transformed into a social justice education resource provider, just free resources. Um, so people can go there and get great pieces of curriculum. And this is the other thing I like about them is they have like things I could do in my classroom, but they also have these models that look at a more structural view of things. And so it's no matter what my sphere of influence is, I can find something there. Uh, rethinking schools uh, is a, a great uh, resource for the same sort of things. There are a lot of like teacher activist collectives. I don't I don't know about the ones that exist in Canada, but mm -hmm. there are a lot in the in the U.S. Um, uh, 
like the New York uh, Collective of Radical Educators is one, Teachers for Social Justice is one. So those organizations uh, often are putting out free resources that look both at structural issues and also uh, classroom sort of things. Uh, so. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. I will uh, make sure there's links to those in the, uh, in the show notes. What are you most excited about? What's next for you? What, uh, are you writing, doing some speaking, you're teaching what, but what, uh, what are you most excited about? Oh, wow. Uh, actually one of the things coming up for me that I'm most excited about is something I'm doing actually in Canada, uh, in the Toronto area. Uh, I've been, um, I'm also doing like a, I'm doing like a series there. I'm also doing a series in the U.S. and Vermont that's quite similar. But uh, I love these opportunities when I could do, I'm doing like a two-day uh, workshop on the equity literacy framework. It's like this weekend workshop that we're trying to make really affordable for people. And I think it's going to draw people from across Canada. And I believe that's in November. <laughs> I hope. Uh, but then there's going to be a part two of it where it's like a train the trainer, where it'll be a smaller group and, and I'll get to work with people to be able to do the kinds of workshops that I and my organization do. And I love that because it just kind of spreads mm-hmm. the work out. Uh, so like, I don't feel protective of any of my resources. I, I just want people to be using them and spreading it, uh, uh, spreading it out. And so maybe people can, uh, can look that up. Awesome. Yeah. No, that sounds like a nice way to scale your impact because at the end of the day, um, there's only so much of Paul to go around, right? You can only make so many, so many workshops happen with everything else that you've got. So, um, anything, any last minute or last items that you want to throw out there for the listening audience before I thank you and say goodbye? Uh, last thing, just something we just talked about really briefly, mm-hmm. is that I know people are really drawn to all the trauma-informed SEL, uh, restorative practices, uh, PBIS, all of that, the kind of all the fancy new stuff. And I, I really want to encourage you all, to everyone to think about all the PBIS I have questions about. But, but can you define PBIS? Sorry, can I interrupt you? What is PBIS? I don't, uh, I'm not oh, familiar PBIS. with that. Model, it's uh, positive behavior interventions and supports. I think it's okay. uh, so it was very popular in the US, I think it's becoming popular in Canada uh, too. But it's uh, people can look up pbis.org, look at the model. Uh, a lot of people think it's quite new, but and a lot of people are doing it along with SEL, social emotional mm-hmm. learning. The most important part of that marriage of PBIS and SEL is really about. Uh, not just being reactive to behaviors. I call it reactive rule flinging. So here's the behavior. I'm just going to fling a rule at that mm-hmm. behavior, which is so often it's like the culture of schools is very discipline focused, mm-hmm. very punitive culture yep. often schools. Um, and when really what we need to do is, is understand what the root of a behavior is. So for instance, just a really quick example, let's say a kid comes to school high or comes to school drunk and, for, and a lot of schools are just, well, here's the policy, send the kid home, three days suspended, whatever it, it is. But, you know, some kids and, and, you know, this, you should probably, because of your interest in mental health, are probably aware of this. But a lot of kids who use those substances are using them to uh, self-medicate, to address depression. To make to, school you know, more tolerable. To make school more tolerable. And, and so just... And, and it's like, we just got to learn how to just take a step back and take a deep breath and say, actually, these kids need our help. They don't need punishment. They don't need to be criminalized mm-hmm. for what is normal behavior for a kid who is dealing with uh, a lot of challenges. Uh, but all of these things, SEL, trauma-informed, restorative, if, if we look at them through an equity and justice lens, can be really powerful tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, anyone who has access, anyone who is leading professional development, even if you're bringing in someone to do professional development around SEL, it's really important to bring in someone who's doing that through an equity and justice lens. Uh, so I, I think sometimes we get an education so enamored about what the, whatever the shiny new thing is that everyone just jumps on it. And, uh, you know, we really have to develop that equity lens. So we're filtering everything, including all these shiny new things 
through that uh, through that lens. I think that's one of the biggest problems in education right now is just we're churning through, you know, emotional intelligence, learning styles, trauma-informed practices. It's just on and on and grit on. Grit mindset, on. grit and growth mindset, and grit, you know, insert I mean, your shiny new. Um, I mean, I yeah. think grit has done more damage in schools to marginalize kids than maybe anything since you know, the mindset of poverty or cultural poverty idea became popular. Mm-hmm. Like grit is the new version of that. Yep. And, and it's just people bought into it because it was compelling and shiny and new. And uh, it's made equity worse in most places that it's been applied. Yeah, well, it really resonates with an individualistic perspective, right? If I can, right. if I can narrow the scope of this conversation down to the individual in front of me and their lack of grit or their mindset problem, then... And, you know, I've, I tackle growth mindset all the time because that's the one for me, you know, that drives me crazy. It's like, well, in some environments, kids have fixed mindsets. In other contexts, they have growth mindsets. We don't, we never explore the context. We just blame the individual. And it's right. Like, I'm sure that I get experienced as having a fixed mindset in certain circumstances, you know, when I'm fearful or when I'm uncomfortable or just, you know, there's lots of, lots of contextual factors that we conveniently ignore with lots of these models where we try to simplify behavior down to, you know, a causal mechanism that, uh, that's a challenge. So, well, Paul, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And good luck with all of the work that you're doing and your, your stuff up in, in Toronto. Um, I'm sure that, uh, that that'll go really well. And I love the train the trainer model to expand the reach and the scope and the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for joining me and uh, we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with Paul Gorski as much as I did. You can check out the work that he's doing with the Equity Literacy Institute just by clicking the links in the show notes. And stay tuned for next week. We're talking, we're digging deeper into this topic of status power and systems and structures in society with Glynis Lieb. She's the executive director of the Institute for Sexual Minority Studies at the University of Alberta. 